So the 2023 Sundance Film Festival is currently going on. It's day seven. I'm not there. There are some friends of mine out there, including a friend of ours, Heather Buckley, who is a film producer. So out of the films that are playing, those were selected from 15,855 submissions and over 4,000 of which were feature-length films. Out of the 4,000 films, about over 1,600 of them were from the U.S., just about 2,400 of them were international. Some of the interesting-looking films to me, as far as narrative films, one that sounds interesting is The the Accidental Getaway Driver that's written and directed by Sing J. Lee. A routine pickup, an elderly Vietnamese cab driver is taken hostage at gunpoint by three recently escaped Orange County convicts and that's based on a true story magazine dreams that's another one written and directed by elijah bynum and it's about an amateur bodybuilder struggles to find human connection as his relentless drive for recognition pushes him to the brink the persian version uh, written and directed and produced by mariam kashavaris this is about a large iranian american family one that's getting a lot of press is sometimes i think about dying directed by rachel lambert screenwriters Kevin Armento, Stephanie Abel Horowitz, and it's starring Daisy Ridley. It's about a character named Fran who likes to think about dying. It gives her sensation to her quiet life. When she meets a new guy at work, laugh. It leads to more, a date, a slice of pie, a conversation, a spark. The only thing standing in their way is Fran herself. Another one that sort of piqued my interest and apparently was picked up by A24 films already that played at the Sundance Midnight section called Talk to Me. Apparently, it was directed by a couple of Australian YouTubers that are really popular called Raka Raka. I've never heard of them before, Danny and Michael Philippou, but they have quite the following on YouTube. And I did see the trailer. Looks interesting. That's something I'd like to definitely take a look at. There's a Michael J. Fox film a documentary about the actor Michael J. Fox, which is uh, directed and produced by acclaimed documentary filmmaker Davis Guggenheim. The improbable tale of a short kid from a Canadian army base who became the darling of 1980s Hollywood, only to find the course of his life altered by a stunning diagnosis. I've always been a Michael J. Fox fan. That's definitely a film that I want to see. Another a documentary that's playing at Sundance is called Kim's Video. Playing with the forms and tropes of various cinema genres, the filmmaker set off to, on a quest to find the legendary lost video collection of 55,000 films in Sicily. So Kim's Video is a place that it's a, it was a store on St. Mark's Place. It was a video store. You could rent and buy films. It was a record store downstairs. It was actually really cool. I used to go there all the time. And uh, apparently... They had over 55,000 films that when Kim's closed down, supposedly the collection was lost. Um, that's something I'm really interested in seeing, actually. So on the business side, uh, IndieWire released an article yesterday about the deals that have been done at Sundance so far. Talk to Me was acquired by A24. A variety reports that A24 acquired the film in a high seven-figure deal, and it's expected to have a theatrical release sometime this summer. Laura and Son, the distributors, Apple TV Plus. Apple had made a splash in 2021 by acquiring the Sundance audience and jury prize winner Coda for $25 million. And that paid off with the Best Picture win. Last year, it acquired what became the 
the audience award winner cha-cha real smooth for 15 million netflix acquired the rights to run rabbit run that was in the midnight section of sundance which stars uh successions sarah snook from director dana reed known for the shining girls and the handmaid's tale the film is a thriller and horror movie about a fertility doctor who believes firmly in life and death but after noticing the strange behavior of her young daughter must challenge her own values and confront a ghost from her past. The film was shot on location in Melbourne, Australia and other parts of the country. And Netflix has picked up the worldwide rights to it. Fair Play was also picked up by Netflix and it was in the U.S. dramatic section of Sundance and it was considered um, one of the biggest deals of the festival, which was in the range of $20 million. It's an erotic psychological thriller directed by chloe domont the film's about a couple that keeps their relationship secret while working for a ruthless and cutthroat hedge fund as many as seven distributors reportedly bid on the rights to fair play so there was a bidding war happening and searchlight neon being among those seven distributors fair play boasts ryan johnson and ram bergen from t street as executive producers the film is First in a deal between T Street and MRC. So we're going to actually play a throwback episode from two years ago in the middle of the pandemic when I had filmmakers Heather Buckley, who produced The Ranger, along with the director of The Ranger, Jen Wexler, on the podcast. Welcome to the Film Scene Podcast. All right, guys. Well, today on Film Scene, we're so thrilled to have writer and director of the punk rock horror film, The Ranger, Jen Wexler and her producer, Heather Buckley. Welcome, Jen and Heather. Thank you, thanks for having us. Thank you. So excited. I think we're good. How's the quarantine good. been treating you guys? Quarantine was treating me well. It's a lot like, as some people have posted, like being sent to your room just to watch, uh, you know, Netflix all day long and listen to records and music. Yeah. I haven't been left very my apartment in like, 65 days or something like at all at all like you have not been out in the open air like i go out from time to time to get my mail and stuff but pretty much i've been just trying to stay inside as much as possible um because i'm in the middle of brooklyn and there's a lot of people outside and i'm terrible maybe because i've seen too many horror movies i'm scared (laughs) of contracting this thing so i just try to stay in as much as possible Um, have you changed as a human being jen being indoors that long uh i miss i miss uh human interaction i miss drinking in bars with my friends but overall i'm just looking at it, it as a way to really like focus on my projects and just like try to get shit done yeah that's the best i think we could do that's what yeah. i'm doing for sure uh my dp has not left his apartment at all at all like he has not had a breath of fresh air since this thing has started in months wow yeah but um and you know sort of sort of early on in this thing he he's already sort of a hypochondriac so this has just magnified everything you know like we we did a shoot in early february when he was just hearing about this and he was like wearing gloves and all this stuff and i'm like alex what are you doing he's like i'm telling you he's like this is gonna be really bad this is gonna be really bad i'm like calm down dude it's gonna be fine and so i guess he was right in some ways <laughs> he was ahead of the curve he was ahead of the curve 
I guess I was ahead of the curve too, because I was planning on taking a trip at kind of early on in that time. And my gut instinct told me, just don't take that trip. Just, mm. and I'm a very instinctual person. So, so I guess tell us a little bit about the premise of the film. Jen. So the Ranger is about a bunch of punk kids who get in trouble with the cops and then they go out to the woods to hide out where they come up against a killer park ranger who starts to take them out one by one. And it's kind of a mashup of, um, you know, it's my ode to 80s slashers meets 80s punk movies. Nice. And actually, I love the scene uh, amongst many other scenes, but uh, I love the scene where they're actually at the punk show in the beginning because, uh, you know, there's so many movies that don't get that right. And I thought that was really cool how that was depicted. Well, Heather Buckley here threw us a punk show. <laughs> one, of the, one of the many tasks given to me by my beloved, my beloved close friend and sister, Jen Wexler, is that she wanted a punk show. So as we know, uh, as uh, Zeph and I are part of the very similar punk scene, is that a lot of the medium-sized venues are closed, like people like Coney Island, High, Coney Island High, CBGBs, and things like that. So I got a tip to go to Don Pedro's in Brooklyn, which is not necessarily like my scene. I didn't really hang out there. But it was, like, it was a cold, slushy day. We were looking at all these places, and I was parked outside in my totally beat-up car. And, um, and Jen and Ashley, uh, uh, seen where the producers were inside there for a long period of time. It's like, did anything happen? And it's like, no, they, they loved it. They loved it. So it was, it was, so it was an original space, punk rock venue. We shot it upstairs and, and, and downstairs. And the way that I invited people, it's like, we, we look for a great band to be there. I asked the hair, the hairdresser, the punk rock hairdresser of the film, uh, Patrick Rogers, who he would suggest. He suggested out of many bands, Rotten UK, who looks like they were preserved in sort of like these this 80s punk rock, death rock look. And we, we invited everyone from New Jersey and New York City that I could. My friend, there's a lot of my friends in, in the movies and I wanted to make sure one thing happened. And I blessed my, my PA Adam for that, is that I wanted everyone to come into to get their names so at the end we could put like the punks and list every single punk that was in that scene and if you if you pause that scene maybe you'll recognize some names of people who have been at been at shows but those are also like so many of our friends so many of our friends came in and and partied with us that day like so many people from the film horror scene like ted gagan uh horror director and Michael Gingold and uh, Frank Sabatella, like so many of our buddies came and hung out with us. Yeah, we have a picture of Mike Gingold wearing like an O-ring collar and a t-shirt. Also, uh, there's cameos by your dad. Oh, my dad's in that scene. My dad plays one of the cops. He loved it. He had so much fun that day. That's awesome. He, and here he's arresting Jocko, right? No, he's arresting Ted. Oh, amazing. He's, yeah. So I have a funny story for you guys. Back in the day, uh, but I was friendly with this band Agnostic Front, and there's a guy named Vinny Stigma that he was, when I was 19 years old, he's like, hey, do you want to be in a movie as an extra? I'm like, yeah, I'll be in it. He's like, they'll pay you 50 bucks a day. We're, we're playing a show at the Guggenheim Museum. I'm like, at the Guggenheim Museum? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And Apparently, the director was Matthew Barney. Matthew Barney, yep. yep. I've seen, I've seen the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the videos when I went there. And I called up my friend Josh, and I went, I had no idea that you 
are in the Guggenheim Museum. Oh my God, you're in those videos. I'm in that, I'm in that. So, so here's what's funny about it, right? So the first day it was really weird. It was like a really like, to say art house movie, I watched a lot of art house movie. This is beyond an art house movie. This was a very avant-garde sort of film. Matthew Barney at the time was married to Bjork. And I guess he just made these movies that were super avant-garde. And there was, Agnostic Front was playing at the Guggenheim. And then there was like, you know, people kind of making like a circle pit around this guy who's dressed up in this weird makeup. And that was Matthew Barney himself. And he made the mistake of telling like the punk rockers, like, hey, you, if you guys want to kick me or like, like something while you're dancing, it's like, it doesn't matter. And then it was, it was idiotic. People were going in. I wasn't, you know, but people were kind of abusing that a little bit. Whoa. Much, you know <laughs> but anyway so so i didn't even i it was like a two-day shoot and then i think it was like a year or two before the movie came out and i was an early adopter of netflix like back when they had the dvds and you know and i remember going home from college and my parents were away everybody was away i'm like let me watch this movie that i was in so i had a few beers i queue up this movie and I had a sort sort of surreal experience because it was hands down the weirdest movie that I've ever seen in my life. And I was in it. <laughs> what was it called? It's called The Cream Master 3. Oh, is that different from The Cremaster Cycle? Or is that the yeah, same? no, that's it. Yes, yeah, The Cremaster films. I've heard oh, about I mean, it. I've never seen it, but I've heard. Yeah, I've only seen it. When I was in the Guggenheim, just as part of the exhibit, I didn't know that you were part of the full movie. That's so great. I'm going to have to get it. Because I remember, it's like, I was walking with my friend and on the bottom, did you go, did you go to the exhibit at the Guggenheim? I did not. Because at the on the floor, in sort of like white on white was a big New York hardcore symbol. And then when I looked up, I think it was, was it Agnostic Front and Murphy's Law? So it was two hardcore bands with two different like punk rock people doing circle pits with white gloves on. Yes. And I went, oh, my God, that's my friend Josh Goodman. And I texted him, and I said, you're at the Guggenheim Museum. Yeah, yeah, it was there. It's it's funny. Yeah, it was just sort of a surreal experience. Also uh, famous. You're famous. All right. I didn't know what was, we were talking about. You have to about. press pause to even find me, but yeah, I guess. <laughs> and and I, don't, I, I didn't even make it through the whole movie. I think I watched three quarters of the movie because there's no – there's no narrative of the movie at all. It's like, it only makes sense to Matthew Barney, the guy that made it. Oh, his work to me is very inspirational and beautiful. And I think that whole cycle, the Cram Master, like as a horror fan, yeah. that like the goat images and things shoved in his face with all the blood. Maybe, you know, I have to revisit it. May, you know, my taste has definitely evolved uh, since I'm 19 years old. At, at, when I was 19, I didn't even watch foreign films. And now, you know, I'm, I mostly watch foreign films, I would say. You know, so I have to revisit it. <laughs> so tell me how you tell me about the inception of The Ranger. How did how did you first conceive of the idea of the film? So I went to college. I uh, majored in screenwriting and one of my classmates, Jocko Farino, we had to write these senior thesis screenplays um, for our final year. And his screenplay was The Ranger. It was more, much more of a body count movie, horror movie. And, uh, you know, the whole stuff with Chelsea, the main character's arc wasn't quite there. But 
I was really into this concept of like punks versus park ranger. It felt really 80s. It felt really like comic book. It felt like something that already should have been made. And so I just like was obsessed with his idea, but we didn't know how to make movies yet. So after a couple years, uh, I started working for Glass Eye Picks. I learned how to produce movies. And then when I thought about what I wanted to direct for my first feature, I remembered his script for The Ranger. And I was like, yo, man, can you find that? And can we like work on it together and update it to our current sensibilities? Um, and so we did that. And uh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And did you guys have to redraft it several times? Was that yeah. an intense rewriting process? Yeah, we, we, it's, you know, it's just part of the process. Do you have, but it was, it was helpful to work off of the thing that already existed. I always find writing is so much easier. Like once I have a draft, the hardest thing is always staring at the blank page, right? So when you're working off of um, something that already exists, everything just flows so much easier. Yeah. What were your process of working with Jocko? I always love to hear that. <laughs> You know, it's so funny. We're, we're working on something right now, a new script. And our process right now in quarantine is we have a Zoom video conference and Jocko writes down all the ideas. And I, you know, we talk back and forth, but today he was like, Jen, I'm getting big Hollywood energy. Cause I just was like going off on all these like rants about things. And I had this, uh, this ball, I was like throwing up in the air and Meanwhile, he was typing everything like furiously as I was saying it. So that's not our routine every day, but that was our routine this morning. Nice. I approve. The punk rock element was there from the first draft of the script. Was that there even in his draft before you got it? Yeah. It was always punks versus park ranger. Um, and, you know, we're, we uh, used to go to shows and stuff when we were teenagers. He was from the Philly scene. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, but I think it was just this, sh- it was just this shared love and we both knew those kinds of kids. So it all, when we, especially when we met up again to rework on it, um, it all flowed really easily. And we kind of all, we kind of funneled our frustrations of stuff we dealt with when we were teenagers into the script, like, you know, kids, being assholes to each other like you the punks all love each other but at the same time they're dicks to each other so we took all that when we funneled it no i thought that was i thought that was really very accurate about how they went to the cabin and she's just trying to have them be just even slightly respectful and then just they don't give a shit you know and or even about her uncle passing away they're not even respectful about that they're like at first cracking jokes about it and then at best just being sort of awkwardly silent about it so I thought yeah you know, that was sort of spot on when I originally read the script I, I told Jen it's like how do you know our secrets <laughs> so much like the east coast assholes that we know beloved assholes I want to mention in the punk scene is always making fun of each other like if, like if a band is playing who's ever who's ever like trolling that band the hardest that's like your best friend that's how you know you're loved on the east coast if you're taken down that way all the time. But that was one reason that I love, I love the authenticity of the characters and the language and being a punk rocker my- myself to see that, to, 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 to see it on paper and then the manifestation of, of Jen's amazing work as director. It's like, it was like whatever was on that page, that script that we read, that's exactly the movie that Jen delivered. Nice. Yeah. And I, what I think is kind of cool about it too, is aside from it being a punk rock horror film 
which is awesome. I think there was a lot of interesting character stuff too with uh, with Chelsea. I think there was a lot of nuanced sort of stuff with her revisiting the cabin and kind of thinking about her childhood and then assessing her current group of friends and the dynamics of how they're behaving. So I thought that was pretty interesting of what you guys pulled off. Yeah. Um, I also think there's something about, you know, being a poser, right? So all these her group of friends, they're all like, essentially, they're all accusing her of being a poser. But really, they're all the posers. They're all, you know, trying yes. to use these costs, not costs, they're trying to use their clothing to like, prove that there's something, but it only goes, you know, so deep. It's, it's all very surface. Right. Uh, being able to name drop bands, showing, you know stuff you're wearing whatever or having this like dickish kind of attitude um it's it's all a surface kind of thing and meanwhile you have the ranger and he's also wearing his own you know the punks are wearing their uniform he's wearing his uniform everyone's trying to like be a, a certain thing and then you just have chelsea in the middle of it and she's just trying to figure out who she is despite all the noise around her and i think uh you know I, I liked playing around with the idea of like who's really the poser. No, I, I actually picked that up because at toward the end of the movie, and I'm not trying to give away any spoilers here, but her behavior toward the ranger and her sort of defiance toward him, I was like, well, she's actually the really real deal punk there when she's refusing the food and you know just kind of like having an attitude of fuck you to him in that moment where it could be very deadly for her. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely picked that up, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, deep down. <laughs> He's the punk all along. <laughs> it was kind of fun. I thought it was funny, too, how uh, he kept quoting kind of like the, the laws of... Uh, <laughs> did, you, did you guys take that from somewhere? It's like, it's like littering is section 3.4 or whatever it was. You know, I don't want to misquote it, but, you know, yeah. that, was, that was pretty good. Our executive producer runs a tour company around the Grand Canyon, and he um, came to set with this whole list of actual park codes. And it was, you know, so we did some last-minute adjustments on the script, and we added that in, and uh, it was great. It, it fits his character quite well. Yeah, and for me, I, I, I like films that reward repeat watchability for me that's a big thing and you know i'd seen your film when it first came out after i met you guys and funny enough i have to tell you the story of how i first heard of your film i've heard of it before i met the two of you through instagram because i think i saw one of the actors who must be like a friend of a friend of a friend type of thing put out a posting and he like i was like wait a minute you know i saw a photo where somebody's wearing a punk Jackie's he's like i was an actor in this movie it was like a punk rock horror film i was like whoa well that looks kind of interesting you know i definitely want to check that out so that's good i word of mouth granite it was granite right right granite yes that's his name yeah yeah and he's albain because i could tell by his name i'm assuming he's albain and i'm albain yeah i think you know we must have had some some friends in common or something no he brought a real a real authenticity to the role. I think that's one of his, uh, was that his first feature, Jen? I think it was his first feature, yeah. And the way that he took the dialogue, it felt very street. It reminded me of like a lot of the New York hardcore boys and he had like that great accent, that regional accent. 
to the New York City area. Yeah, for sure. And I, I could definitely, you know, he definitely sold it. And, and especially when they go to the basement of the Ranger and it's like, dude, shut up. Like, yeah. <laughs> stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, try to be discreet. <laughs> and it's, totally. like, it's like that character just was not able to do that. <laughs> yeah. He, Granite's amazing. He uh, definitely went from when he came in from, you know, his first, my first meeting with him, I like felt that chaotic energy and I was like, this is perfect for Garth. So actually another thing, well, when I was talking about rewarding the repeat watchability, you know, it sort of felt innocuous the first time I saw it, but that song, The Most Beautiful Girl, it's so much creepier on su subsequent viewings for some reason. Like, it's really like, it's very disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I could articulate why, but. Well, yeah. I mean, we all fell in love with that song too. That was Jeremy, you know, who plays the Ranger was singing it on set and that was just part of you know him finding the character this was a song that he felt was the ranger's character so he would sing it on set and uh we we got some of it our sound guy got some of it so we had these little recordings of him singing it um and we were just playing with it in post and we were like well let's try dropping the song in there and see how it plays and it was like oh my god this is amazing this is amazing supposed to be part of the movie jeremy is a magical actor because he would not break character even in between breaks it's like a gift it was a gift to the movie wow that's intense psa's <laughs> missing trees lurking about it's the best he does a lot of lurking <laughs> that's funny so so jen what's your process in terms of like visually do you like with your DP, like, do you work off shot lists? Do you make storyboards, like floor plans? How do you typically visually plan out the shooting of the film? So first, even when I'm still developing the script, I'm putting together, you know, mood boards and lookbooks and stuff. So I'm figuring it out for myself what the overall aesthetic is way before I ever talk to any department head. And then that way the department heads, they come in, they see my materials and they know like what world we're working in. Uh, and they understand what the overall style and the aesthetic is. And then, you know, you go to the location, you see what what you're going to be using within the location, or if you're going to be building a location, uh, building a set. And then it's just a lot of conversation. And then, you know, I, I usually create storyboards for myself. And then I create shot lists that I actually share with the DP. And sometimes if I'm not communicating something well, I'll show him the storyboard or, you know, we'll go back and forth. and and write out the most effective way to get the shot. But I try to give as much information up front, and then that way, when they come back to me with their ideas, we're, we're speaking the same language. Nice. Yeah. Was there specific films that you were sort of referencing as, like, kind of mood pieces, you know, or just kind of inspirations? For yeah. Well, definitely wanted to um, embrace the this kind of... 80s um, horror aesthetic, like Creep Show, was really on my mind because um, it has the comic book element to it. Um, but then, you know, because the Ranger, it's all about Chelsea. There were moments that I also wanted to get subjective in her perspective, and I think that is much more of a, you know, 2000, like late 2000s indie kind of aesthetic, where where 
we have kind of, you know, some scenes with more, when she's like by herself, like softer focus and we're following her around the woods and things like that. Um, so it's kind of a blending of all of those things. And we also looked at a lot of 80s punk references, like of uh, the classics that are Return of the Living Dead. I know you mentioned class of 1984. Yeah, definitely. In terms of like look and feel and color, I was definitely thinking about Return of the Living Dead and class of 1984 and Repo Man. Um, definitely in terms of like production design, we're thinking a lot about Repo Man. Um, unfortunately, I wish I could have had, our production wasn't quite equipped to be able to handle this, but it would have been a dream to be able to have our um, convenience store have all, have the shelves just stocked with like fake brands and stuff, a la Repo Man, just having like bread or beer. <laughs> but we shot in a real convenience store, so we couldn't actually do that. Yeah, I like the convenience store scene, actually. That was, uh, how, how long was the shoot in general? How many days did you guys have to make the film? It was like 18 days, and then we, a couple months later, did a couple pickups to do things like the close-up of the boom, boom box exploding, and we did some of our drone shots and things like that. Stuff we didn't need the cast for. That makes sense. And it, and it shows you a way of, because um, uh, we watched many iterations of the film, but just sort of the, the places to cut away and the energy in the air that, that sort of like B-roll gives you. I think yeah, it's... See how that, you know, helps shape the film. It's really helpful, I think, from a producing perspective and from a directing perspective. It's nice when you're able to budget for a couple of pickup days and you know that you'll have those pickup days because then you are able to have your cut of the movie and feel safe knowing that, okay, we're going to fill out this scene a little bit by getting this one or two other things. Um, so even as a producer, I try to budget for that. Yeah, I did the same exact thing on my feature film. It was it was about the same shooting schedule, and then we had uh, a bunch of days, a bunch of pickups after that initial stretch stretch of principle. Were they with the pickups sort of like B roll or were they? No, uh, they were a little mostly well, a lot of B roll, but then there were also some full on scenes. And I hate doing reshoots, but there was a couple of things that we ended up doing reshoots on, and because our film was sort of a non-linear time film that, you know, there was a couple of things that ended up getting changed and sort of enhanced in some of those extra days. But we, we, I guess we knew that we would have them, you know, as well. So it was kind of planned out that way. Yeah. So how did you guys meet? Oh my God. So I, I had, I've had many lives before I became a film producer. I worked in New York city advertising and I used to moonlight just for the joy of it for dread central and Fangoria magazine print. And then one gore, one gore zone issue. And I just, I would go to film fest. I would go to Fantasia. I would hang out. I knew about Larry. I knew about glass eye picks a long time ago. My writing partner and someone who I do my extras with Ethan Halo told me I needed to meet two people in my life. One was Larry and one was Mike, um, Michael Felcher. And I got on to work with both of them. So I just knew Jen. Jen was so cool. Jen's look, it's like the black eyeliner, like Joan Jett and the boots and all in black. And she was so cool. And I just loved, I loved hanging out with her. And the reason she gave me the script, and it was just because because I my, my, myself am 
and punk rock. And she goes, would you just read this? And I was so inspired by it. And I was just giving her a little, showing her stuff on Tumblr, punk rock images or crazy, crazy 80s images. And then at some point I wanted to, uh, to, to pitch it for her. So that was my involvement in the Ranger, but I just knew her just from hanging out. And the whole process was, it's like, I loved her. She's so cool. She had great passion for this project. And I knew that I could have let, like added a little, I, I knew where to get the punk rock and how to like present it to her because Jen wanted the punk rock, the authenticity is like, I know where to get that for you. And then I was able to to do my little, 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 little glitter magic in the film to help her, to help her with her vision. But the first time I think I, we ever worked on anything professionally was in my, was in um, most beautiful island where I am an extra and I shouldn't be that noticeable in this film, but the camera pans with the lead and I'm in the background of this coffee scene. And when I was at South by Southwest, I was doing some journalism work. Everyone's going like, Heather, are you in Most Beautiful Island? And then when I saw it after it won, uh, won, won the main award because Jen produced it, there, there it was. But she sent out an email and it's like, oh, Jen's asking me to be an extra at Glass Eye Picks thing. It's like, I still have because on set, where we don't like use water bottles, you know, you make your own like Ranger water bottle and you fill that up. So we have to have our cup and you put your name on it. And that is your cup all day long. Cause I was an extra. And so I still have that cup. It had like tacky seventies colors on it and HB it's in one of my order uh, auditorium boxes. But they, that's how we met. It's like, it's a community here. We all love horror. We all support one another. And then I just happened to go on to, and it was just, it's an, it was an honor to work with Jen I feel so honored that she asked me to be a producer on it. And then, of course, with, you know, Glass Eye, which is just, to me, like, a legendary great place. The, ori the original thing that I was introduced to Larry was uh, was Habit. It was the commentary. And Ethan goes, like, Heather, you need to listen to his commentary. Because you need to meet him one day. And meeting meeting Larry is its, own, is its own fun story for another time. Nice. What's one of the things that you appreciate about working with Jen? I mean, we're very close friends, so it's the it's it's the complete fearlessness and open openness of communication. It's like I feel yeah. that Jen can Jen can tell me anything and any ideas, and she also knows that I respect and love. Though, like I'm like writer, creator, artist, whatever. It's like I am there for for Jen's vision, and I think it's part of the reason I was like a creative director, creative lead in advertising because though I could create like beautiful like Bauhaus designs, I was always curious as like what with material or their own material, how does one create their vision? I love the process of the manifestation of what Jen wanted to do and have it be 100% Jen. And we're working on getting this other, uh, this other movie off the ground, which you can ask us about later, and it's the same thing there. It's like, it's, Jen, it's, Jen's, it's Jen's script, Jen's gonna direct. I'm very invested in seeing Jen's vision because, because I, I love her and it's also, the, you know, the, the world of there's there's an audience for her style and the story she wants to tell and her stories about femininity and punk rock girls and rebellious girls and demon girls. It's, it's really important. We click to on a lot of, we click over yeah. a lot of things. And I agree. Heather is like what Heather said about our like communication. We're such good friends. So there's always this open flow of communication, like constant, texts and calls or whatever or not like I could also go two weeks without talking to Heather <laughs> but like it's chill no matter way we have the the constant flow when we want it um and yeah. Heather 
if I could say a couple lovely things about Heather, Ooh. is that Heather is so wonderful and passionate and knowledgeable. Um, and she, you know, when she has uh, something she sets her mind to do, like she does not stop until that shit gets done. She is that relentlessness in independent filmmaking is a crucial prerequisite. So it's crucial. You guys have uh, the best sort of creative, collaborative spirit going on. So that's awesome. And I will say that for me, I'm sure, I don't want to speak for you, Heather, but I, for me coming out of like the scene and like punk rock, the, the whole DIY sensibility toward things for me was like an important prerequisite into independent filmmaking, that kind of, hey, I'm just going to do this. I don't want to wait for like a studio to green light me. I'm going to figure out a way to make this happen kind of mentality. Well, you know your own value without ex- ex- without external sort of pop culture value. I know, I know, I knew this work had value. I know we all have value and we should just go out and do it and do, do it ourselves. I think that was always a vibe behind it. I think Larry always talks about the punk rock vibe of glass, glass eye picks. And also part of punk rock is bringing the community together, working with different artists, bringing up a crew, creating, creating leadership. I mean, the, the word crew used both in punk rock world and in film world and also how Jen and I went on, went on tour with the movie to all the film fest and we stood together. And when, when, when some girls like saw Jen, she's my favorite story is like, they would come up to her, they would break down and cry. They did the representation of a woman making horror movies meant so much to them. And also how we did all the marketing to it. That's all, that was all grassroots. That was Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And we just got out there. Just, 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 just the two of us. And sometimes Sean getting the word out. That's awesome. Sean is my boyfriend. Cool. <laughs> and it sounds like he's a great supporter of what you do. So he is. Nice. He's magical. Excellent. I did want to ask, Heather, was it, t- was it tough clearing the rights for the song? You guys mentioned the song that you used that, uh, that Jeremy was singing and, you know, that became amazing in the film. Was it tough clearing the rights in general for the song? That was, that was easy to get because that was just sort of a regular, a regular place. place. The, the amount of, um, it was it cost it, it cost some some you know dollars, but when we reached out to our punk rock community, our punk rock community was here is our music. Nice, that's awesome. Yes, uh, because Meta Goodwin was a music supervisor that we had. He used to book a lot of those bands in the '80s and in the '90s, and it just covers so many years of of punk rock. So what we did is that we had a whole bunch of bands sign off on a chunk of music, even bands that aren't in the movie. And then Jen brought it into the edit. And what I love as like someone who watches things repeated times is that I didn't know the first time I watched it, but I think at the second, third time, and then Jen, you could talk about this more, is that how the songs are either about that scene, like actual content of the songs or sort of like projecting in, in the future. Yeah. Like, how you how you use the the lyrics to sort of build almost a secondary or tertiary narrative in the ranger yeah i think every song um has thematically something to do with what's happening in the scene or what's happening in the story uh but you know i it was such a special experience to be able to sit there with my edit and to be able to sit there with all this amazing music that 
the bands had already said that they wanted to be involved in the film. So I really just got to like choose what made sense, both pacing and story-wise for each scene. So, um, you know, just to say one thing about it is like when the uh, punks are kind of in control, the soundtrack is all punk music. But then when the punks start to lose their footing in the woods, it shifts into uh, more of our composer's music, which is much more, it's uh, uh, Wade McNeil and Andrew Gordon McPherson and their music, you know, we talked about John Carpenter, but we talked about John Carpenter with this like punk edge aesthetic to it. So, um, but that's the Rangers world. And then of course, in the end, uh, when you're in the Rangers cabin, then you go into the country music. So there is, the music throughout the film is, telling a story if you choose to pay attention to it. Nice. And what was the most challenging thing about making this film? Heather, what's your... I love to tell the story about getting the van because at this budget and what we wanted to do with it, it's not a place to rent a picture car in the New York City area. So we bought it about 20 minutes from Jen's parents' house in Northwest Jersey. Like after we looked all over the tri-state area, the van in that movie was 20 minutes away from her parents' house. And then it was, it was the smartest idea to, to grab it, fix it, make sure everything worked on it, and then have most of the cast and crew, including our amazing executive producer, going in there with his, with his boys and decorating the van and it's um it's related to the van in return of the living dead because it's sort of like the baby version of that and then on a side story it's like getting the wolves in three days oh yeah i felt more of like my ward dialing ability from dvd supplement world that if you place enough phone calls you will get a yes That's good advice. Definitely good producing advice. So before we move to the second portion of the podcast, which well, I was going to say for Jen, what was your most challenging part of this of this filmmaking? I think it was um, we had to climb up a mountain to get the final fight scene, and it was was it that one really, mile walk? Was it that one mile walk from the van to the cabin? Was that the most yeah? It was it was worse than that, but in theory, yeah, because cars couldn't go where we wanted to shoot near this fire tower. So we had to walk and the crew had to like carry all the equipment and the actors had to walk. And it was like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours up this really steep terrain. Um, So I felt, I felt a lot of anxiety about making my actors do that, but they had such a good time. Jeremy like ran up it. He was having a blast. Uh, so it all turned out all right. But that was physically the hardest thing because we all had it, you know. What about technically? Hiking. Technically, what was the hardest thing? I don't know. It was just such a dream. I loved every minute of it. I was, like, getting to, like, live my greatest dream. I, there was nothing hard. It was just so much fun. We could talk about the whimsical sequence in the woods, which I think is probably the most dr- dreamlike and magical when it was all hands on set trying to do the um, the the sort of poor man's process with the van with everybody like holding a branch and prancing <laughs> towards the van. Because like Abe's not moving in that car. That's like every PA creating shadows with branches on the side. Oh, that was yeah, that yeah. was a magical night. And just of and those, those nights going into day. Yeah, the hardest part is doing night shoots when you'll have the sun coming up. So there's no way to push. Like you have to finish the 
day before the sun comes up. That maybe was the hardest thing. And 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 from a production standpoint, you can push that time period because when I look at those times and 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 you swear to God, it's like it's it's daylight. This is not going to read. Totally reads. I have no idea. It's the magic of cinema that you could push that early into the morning and and it still feels like night on camera. That is pretty amazing. And it seems it seems like you guys did all practical effects, right? Yep. It's Brian Spears and his crew. Which is awesome. Green axe wounds. Fantastic. And all that great stuff. Um, was that was that challenging or you know, just planning that out and just sort of dealing with all that? It's not challenging, it just takes time. Time. So, you know, Brian Spears, our FX uh master and his team roll up in their makeup truck with all their body parts in the back. And everyone like stops to look at the body parts and, you know, and then actually getting the shots takes mid, uh, like a while. And then you have to reset. If you don't get it on the first take, you have to reset. And when you have a lot of blood and stuff, that takes time. So the only hard part about it is making sure that you have enough time to get it right. Nice. So I'd like to move to the second portion of the podcast. And I'd like to discuss your favorite scene. Or it doesn't have to be your favorite scene, but one remarkable scene from any movie of all time. And maybe Jen, we'll start with you. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a tough question, but when you asked, when you asked me a couple of days ago, the scene that was on my mind at that time, which I will talk about today is the subway scene in Maniac. Uh, Original Maniac, right? From the original 1980 Maniac. And I think it was on my mind because I had just watched it recently on Shudder. I had seen it a long time ago, and I have to say that it. I think that that's one of the reasons why I, I live in New York and walking alone at night around the subway. Not that I've done it recently because of the coronavirus, but back when I used to walk home and take the subway home at night, like the subway is a scary ass place, and like that scene kind of scarred me and has been on my mind many a time. Um, and I also think it has it perfectly captures, you know, when she runs and tries to get onto the train, but the train pulls away. That moment of frustration. I know she's running away from like a serial killer, but I think that moment perfectly captures the frustration we all feel when we just miss the train. Especially late at night when trains only run once in a while on the very late night. Yeah, that's the worst. That's the worst. Um, so I think about that scene a lot. And I was thinking about that scene when you asked me what scene I wanted to talk about. I love the colors. I mean, the whole, I love the whole movie, but I love the mix. Like, it's such a beautiful movie, but it's such a gritty, grimy movie too. Um, and definitely in that subway scene, I love the It's so gritty, but at the same time, it's so beautiful, especially the colors in that bathroom, the turquoise and the yellow and the graffiti. It's like... My eyes just feel so good looking at it. And yeah, I mean, it's genuinely, it's, it's paced really well. They, I've heard that they stole those shots. Um, maybe I should go back and just talk about what the scene is for anyone who hasn't, sure. who hasn't heard it. Okay, who hasn't seen the movie. So uh, there's a nurse and she's leaving her work at the hospital and she is being followed. She goes down the subway. I think it's uh, Columbus Circle. She goes down into the subway. She just misses the train. She feels like Joe Spinell is following her, and he is. 
Um, she tries to leave the subway, but she can't. Every exit is locked. She uh, goes into the bathroom and she hides in a bathroom stall. Um, Joe Spinell comes in. He, uh, you know, hovers nearby. She thinks she thinks he's like the killer that everybody's talking about and that he's about to kill her. And she's right about that. But he walks away. He's like fucking with her. Um, and finally she comes out. She looks in the mirror. She thinks that she's like, she like laughs at herself. Like, oh my God, how could I have thought that that guy was going to kill me? She, this is the grossest part. She puts her face in the, under the sink water and like wipes her face, which is like, Gross. That's, that's gross, even in a pre-coronavirus world. <laughs> yeah, like even if this was not a horror movie, and that's just what the scene was, like that would be disturbing enough. Anyway, she she comes back up to look at herself in the mirror, and then Joe Smell, Spinell's right behind her and stabs her in the back with a sword. Um, and then he washes the sword off in the sink. But the way that it's that it's captured, there's so much tension. In my opinion, it's the best sequence of the movie. Uh, you know, he shoots her through the bars when she's trying to leave the subway. He shoots her, like, through the bars. And um, uh, I was actually reading an interview with Bill Lustig where he he said that he had Texas Chainsaw Massacre on his mind for that scene. Um, And he said he had repulsion on his mind for the scene that takes place in the bathroom, um, in the apartment, the girl's apartment bathroom later on in the movie, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I feel the same way when I watch that scene as I do when I watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I think it's fitting. I will say that movie genuinely horrified me. Like there's very, very few, probably only two movies in the world that that I've seen that are, that have like genuinely horrified me. I, I don't know. It's a very disturbing film, <laughs> and maybe because you're kind of, it's one of the rare movies where you're actually following the killer. I get, you, you know, I guess like you're you're really like on his journey, and so it's even crazier. You know. Yeah, you're seeing you're seeing the details of his life. And those um, of Joe Canal, like when he actually is doing the killings, they're just like, his, there's something about his face that's so expressive and so disturbing. And he's, I mean, he's really sweaty a lot in it. And he, uh, he's another killer that does not wear a mask, which I appreciate. The ranger also does not wear a mask. True. Um, and I also just love, I mean, I love movies from that time period. I love like late 70s, early 80s gritty New York City movies. Um, and I love that this captures, you know, the Son of Sam years of the time. And I think that they shot the, uh, the Tom Savini scene under the Verrazano Bridge, like really close to where there was the Son of Sam murder. Wow. Um, so I don't know, my dad grew up in the Bronx and he was like a teenager around this time. And I just, there's something about it that is like so although I wasn't born yet, it's so nostalgic for me. So I, I love Maniac and I love these kinds of movies. And I think that that scene really captures everything I love about it. Nice. I think my, so I grew up in the Bronx and my parents used to go to a, a video store. We used to, you know, it was like my favorite thing in the world. and Just going to this video store to rent VHS tapes. And I swear, I think that might've been one of the the rentals. I, I definitely saw that movie when I was a kid, whether it was, it might've been on HBO or it might've been, rented from the local video store 
I don't think my parents rented a ton of horror films, but I definitely watched a lot of horror films when I was a kid. And even in the Bronx on channel 11, they would on like Friday the 13th, you know, if it happened to be like a Friday the 13th, they would always show the Friday the 13th movies. And me and my cousins would always watch those movies. And we loved it. I remember watching it. I rented it on VHS and watching it with my father. And during the shotgun scene, he goes, that's very realistic. And that is, that is my favorite memory of the movie Maniac. <laughs> that's funny. That is funny. Dead uh, is very realistic in his Jersey City accent. Yeah. And I mean, in the, in the 1980s, riding the subway was really uh, taking a gamble with your life at that time in gen- on a good day. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, but definitely good choice. I think there was only a, one thing that was a bridge too far in that movie. How he asked that beautiful model out on a date. He's like, oh yeah, sure, let's go out to dinner. And then like they're, they're just dating all of a sudden. I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really buy him and her. <laughs> I love that scene where he like visits her photo shoot and he like gets her a doll and he's like sitting there with the doll on his lap. And you actually kind of feel like, oh my God, like you actually feel empathetic. I feel empathetic for him in that moment. I'm like, oh my God, if you were like brought up differently, like all you want is to be loved, I think. I don't know. No, it's a valid point. I think even even the villains, they justify their behavior, you know? In their mind, they're good. I'm sure, you know, I mean, did you feel that way about the Ranger in your movie? Like in oh, yeah. his mind, like he wasn't the bad guy. No, know? the Ranger, and I think actually a lot of people who watch it feel this way too. Because the kids are littering and they're playing their music loud and it's like, shut up, kids. Um, There's certainly a world... Pushing his buttons, for sure. Yeah, there's a world of the ranger. Like, there's a version of the ranger. You could watch it with the ranger being the hero and it all makes complete sense. Um, And also, I think that he and Jeremy, I think, would speak to this too, that the ranger really just wants to connect with someone and he feels like he... He feels like Chelsea will understand him. And uh, he's wrong about that, <laughs> but he he feels like there's some shared connection between him and Chelsea, and all he really wants is love too. And I think a lot of our serial killers just need a little bit of love and understanding. I remember, Jen, you and I were, were driving around upstate New York looking for locations, coming up with fanfic of the Ranger's love life and story. It's like, was he a virgin? <laughs> Did he just find people and just just stalk them and go, this person's now my girlfriend? It's like, what's going on with my sister? Jeremy thought he was he was a hero, and I would say villain, and then he or anyone would say that he would correct you, and he goes, no, just what Jen said, he's very misunderstood. And Ranger Twitter did a, a did a, a a poll of who to back, and it was fifty fifty. And some people are going like, why are all these people on the side of authority? But it is true. It should be watched yeah. both ways. That's hysterical. Um, all right, Heather. So let's let's talk about the scene from one of your favorite movie scenes. All right. So I'm a huge horror fan, as every as everyone knows, but I'm also based on my bandana collection, a huge uh, Western fan. So I picked the scene, uh, Ecstasy of Gold from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm very inspired by the works of Leone and a lot of, not, not, the, American, not the American Westerns, but a lot of the Italian Westerns because I feel they deal with like death, the embodiment of death and these sort of archetypical uh, cowboy figures, this, the starkness, 
the unforgiving nature of existence. A lot, a lot of this is in those in those movies. One of the most classic ones are is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, when I think of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I think of the scene, I always think of the scene which I feel like Tarantino has put many times in his movies, sort of like the standoff at the end. But before the standoff happens, there's a great sequence and also uh, the Marconi score is named after it, Ecstasy of Gold. So Tuco, who is the bastard throughout the entire movie, he finally gets to this graveyard. It's a vast graveyard, complete, completely built, as far as the eye can see, all these great wooden crosses and like a child. And it brings the audience with them. It's like, I am here I've made it. I'm alive. I'm going to find my gold. And the 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 flamboyancy of the camera moving around, the joy with him, the music. I think it's a very I think it's a very bold scene in that movie to bring Tuco the character and the film it's in the film itself into this sort of like childlike aesthetic aesthetic state with soaring music patterns of the graveyard, camera movement, and of course, uh, Eli Wallach. Oh, man. I think it's very interesting. When I was thinking about movies to talk talk about, I was thinking about what I call like un petit set pieces, which is like, I always think about not a huge sequence in a film, but like moments in film. It's like Norris head in the thing creeping away, or like, you know, Leatherface spinning his chainsaw right at the end of the film before you cut to black. I always think about like those like less than minute sequences. But for me, it's like it's very interesting to talk about the ecstasy of gold uh, of gold sequence just because of how it's tra- so transformational for that character who's a very complex character in that movie. Well, it's, it's a great choice. I mean, that's definitely one of the best films ever made, which is crazy because I guess it wasn't critically acclaimed at the time, which blows my mind, um, that I guess, uh, you know, the LA Times, when The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly came out, apparently sort of ripped it as being like a subpar sort of Western. Um, Honestly, I prefer a lot of the spaghetti Westerns to a lot of the American Westerns, personally. Well, I I think, again, the more philosophical, and because it's not, it's not their their culture, there's a distance where they could create sort of a poetry in the work. Because I love that they're elliptical. I love there's a lot of, like, near-far photography. You get macros, these, these beautiful framing and doorways and sets and again like the the faces of the italian western it's like it's it's like fellini or Pasolini. is that you get so and that, that's your narrative because these movies are not about plots they're they're truly cinematic it's like here's a fate here's an environment here's a gun here's a graveyard there's no dialogue for the first 10 minutes of that film which is amazing mm-hmm. there's no dialogue for the first 10 minutes of the good the bad and the ugly which and you don't even notice because it's so cinematic that you don't even really think about it, you know? I, I feel I feel the same and I draw a line in the sand about Fury Road is that that's also, to me, an incredibly a cinematic achievement to tell that much story with not that much dialogue and doing it with production design, faces, location, that you get what's going on. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I mean that score by Ennio Morricone was hands down my favorite tour. Also an important score because that's what the what's what hardcore bands walk out to in New York City. <laughs> yes, that's is true. the theme. Yeah. I think Agnostic Front uses that theme to walk out on stage. Agnostic Front did use to use that song. Um that's uh, yeah, that's very true. 
Yes. And, and, you know, there's like, a, there's like a punks and, and cowboys unity there. I mean, if you just think about like how Joe Strummer used to dress. True. Yeah. Certainly with bananas, boots, right? I wore spurs, boots. Yeah. Uh, archetypical with our mohawks. But great choice. So what's, what's uh, next on the agenda guys? You got you Heather, you mentioned briefly that you and Jen are collaborating on, on a future project. Are you able to talk about it, about that at all or not really? Jen um, can give you hints out in the okay. world, in the universe. We can't okay. say that much about it. Nope, uh, nope. Just a project we're really excited about. All right. Well, at least there is a future work from the two of you. That's something that we could look forward to. And I've been working in the background uh, with my slate and putting together an ultimate project called uh, called Black uh, called Black Mansion, which is uh, including all my slates and hopefully could be uh, a place that uh, that that collects stories stories and, and voices and uh, and I feel in a genre landscape that that needs more different types of storytellers. As I t- as I tell as I tell people the uh, Black Mansion films that I'm trying to create, it's like in uh, the in CBGBs where like the last song and you pull everybody up on stage and everybody's together. Yes, that's that's what I wanted to feel to feel like. Is the production that company version of that. Mm-hmm. The production company version of that. It would be the production company. Uh, the production company version of that old Black Mansion film. So that's sort of like hiding in the background, being worked on. Sounds intriguing. Where could people follow along with you guys, and where could they go and watch the Ranger? The Ranger is available on Shutter. DVD and Blu-ray and VHS. VHS. Novelization. We made it, yeah, we, we have a novel written by Ed Kurtz. Um, we have the vinyl. We have like so much swag around it too. Like audio commentary, director's commentary with the Blu-ray? Yep. Amazing. As I am a DVD supplement producer, there are some DVD supplements on that Blue. There are five of them, five of them, and a commentary. First of all, I appreciate the fact that you are uh, a supplement producer because I think that's something that's getting lost on the newer generation of streaming movies that, you know, I'm like, why aren't they making commentaries for films on like Netflix and stuff like that? I would see them. I think there is a lot of people that would see them. You know, I used to watch, you know, buy DVDs just to watch the commentary sometime. And I'm, a lot of people say that's that was their film school. Is commentaries and extras, right? Yeah, hopefully that'll come back, even in streaming. We should make a push for that (laughs) as filmmakers. Well, The Ranger is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And by the way, my Facebook URL is Joe Spinell Lives, which is 100% (laughs) true. And the name of my phone is Joe Spinell. That's amazing. And then in my bedroom is where I keep my Mondo Maniac poster, which is the black and red three fourths of Spinel. So I love, I just, I love Jen's choice. Can I see? Do you have it? <laughs> it's right there. Ooh. Oh, Thanks. nice. nice. Ooh. Because nice. Joe belongs in the bedroom. <laughs> I like his role in The Godfather. Film. Oh yeah. Cheech, I love him too. That's a, that's a very dramatic scene. That's again like un petit set piece. Yes, him coming in through the the shave, coming in shooting. That's not even a minute. Those <laughs> are the ones I, that's memorable. That lives in my lives in my heart. Well, I'll definitely put uh, the social links on the show notes. 
I appreciate the both of you so much. Look for. And I was going to say, Jen, you're available. Where can everybody find you? Oh, same thing. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Well, thanks again, Jen and Heather. Appreciate the both of you so much for being on the cast. Great talking to the both of you and look forward to seeing your future works. Thank yeah. you for having us. Thanks, man. The Film Scene Podcast is hosted by Zef Kota. Today's guests were Heather Buckley and Jen Wexler. Original music by Yuri Ryback. Executive producer Jeff Cutler. Sponsored by Alphabet City Films.